players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering, Moldrifter, Snuff Out, Boarding Party, and many others, battling head-to-head -head in brutal combat. They all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by Boshmerl on YouTube, Thraven University, and TheEpicStorm.com. This episode is sponsored by Tales of Adventure. Get sweet legacy staples and much more at ToaMagic.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 76 of The Eternal Glory Podcast. Open the gates. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introductions and banter for the week, available in our Patreon-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access. In addition, our next episode is a mailbag episode. So patrons, please submit your questions via Patreon by July 24th for consideration for that episode. As always, I am Phil Gallagher, joined by... Brian Coble, a.k.a. Bosch and Roll. And Bryant Cook of TheEpicStorm.com. All right, gentlemen, I think we're going to go ahead and jump largely straight into it. Oh, we got to uh, shout first, out some new patrons. Brian. Yeah, uh, we got, since the last episode, I might overlap here and somebody gets two crown outs, but uh, we got Gabriel, Musso, Stinkbug. What's up, Stinkbug? Get out of my house, by the way. You're everywhere. I'm sick of you. Unpronounceable. Uh, that's the name. It's not me uh, giving up. And uh, Porter, got some fun names this week. Welcome to the club. I recognize a bunch of those from my own channel, so uh, welcome, everyone. So kind of sticking with the Patreon theme here, um, this is sort of a Patreon-submitted question, although it's not necessarily one question. There's been a lot of discourse on um, Twitter in the last week or so about magic coaching, you know, who wants it? Is it worth it? What's the pricing? So we wanted to kind of start this episode by talking about that, since all three of us do do coaching, at least on a somewhat regular basis. Yeah, I had a really interesting interaction come up. I, I got tagged a bunch of times. This was like, this came from multiple directions. There was like a modern player who is like, I think I'm going to start coaching. What should I charge? And then a few days later, a uh, notable CEDH player had the same question. And I don't know if these communities just don't interact or if it's the, do the dominoes falling or what, but like a lot of coaching discourse from a lot of different directions over the past two weeks. And I replied to one of them. Someone was like, is, is $15 an hour too much to charge? And I quote tweeted them and I was like, I charge 50 and I stay busy. And then like a lot of people were like, yeah, that sounds fair. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Like lots of likes that tweet got a lot of traction. I got a DM from someone, just someone who doesn't even follow me. They had like two followers, uh, just like a person from the ether who saw my tweet recommended for them. And they were like, I don't mean this to sound snarky, but who is paying you $50 an hour for magic coaching? Who are these people? Where do they come from? And what do they want? And I was basically just like, uh, well, they're people who want to get better at the game and recognize that getting direct attention met to their needs is the fastest way to do that. And this person was like, oh, it was kind of like the scene from The Wolf of Wall Street where Jonah Hill is like, you show me a check for $75,000, I'll quit my job right now and come work for you. 
Like that's kind of what happened because uh, the guy was like, okay, um, how do I do that? And I was like, well, uh, I've been playing magic for 25 years. I was a judge for over a decade. I've won a lot of tournaments. I put years into building a content brand and like getting my, I, like I have a master's of education that helps with the teaching aspect of it. And, and they were like, okay. Uh, and where do I start with that? You know what the sick answer to that is? Get some coaching. <laughs> like, honestly, like I, I'm not trying to like roast this person, but it's like, okay, uh, how do I get that good? And the answer is pay someone who is that good to shortcut you. And it just like the conversation just came full circle in a really interesting and amusing way. I did a coaching session um, a few days ago for someone who is a newer YouTuber. And they they paid me, I think it was $35 for an hour of my time. And the number of things that they learned is astounding. Like they were just like, oh my god, you mean I have to be doing that thing? I didn't even know that thing existed. There's so much you can learn from someone who is further along in any given field than you. Um, kind of for the first bullet point here, like, who who wants this? If you are new to something, an hour or two of time with an expert will shortcut you, will slingshot you so, so far ahead. Um, I know a lot of people who have contacted me for coaching are new to death and taxes. And they're like, hey, I am getting my ass kicked. Like, I know I'm doing things wrong, but I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I need someone who has, like, the perspective and experience. Like, help me learn. Yep. New players are great candidates for coaching. Also, plateauing players. Like, if you are that FNM end boss, but you can't seem to top eight the, the PTQ, like, whatever the next level up is, or, like, you're winning PPTQs, but breaking out of regional PTQs, uh, like, finding the threshold where... I'm better than all these people, but worse than all these ones. Shout out my dear friend Alex Bastecki, who won, I think it was four out of five regional Pro Tour qualifiers, and then failed to day two any of those Pro Tours. Like, he found the spot where he is better than everyone in the region, but worse than everyone on the Pro Tour. Somebody like Alex in that situation could have purchased some coaching from, like, Paulo Vitor Domodorosa and maybe leveled up that advanced level of the game. But, like, that exists in all sorts of microchasms along that spectrum. I would rather coach, and I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad here, but I would rather coach someone that is plateaued than someone just getting into the game. So I do get a lot of people that sign up for coaching sessions that are just like, oh, I've never actually played your deck before. I just want you to play it with me and help me learn, which is fine. But then they'll open up a hand and we'll start talking through mulligan decisions. They're like, oh, I don't know what that card does. Or why do I play Rite of Flame before Dark Ritual? And I can level you up over time. But what I've noticed is a lot of these individuals only wanted to pay for one or two coaching sessions. And the leveling up over time thing is really hard to do in four hours, uh, combining both tutoring sessions. Like, you're just not going to get to a good enough level. So I'd rather coach someone that's already figured out a lot of the basics of magic and then help them get elevated. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. I assign homework to work around that. And sometimes people use the time differently, and ultimately I'm going to make it work for them. But in a perfect vacuum where it, the session runs how I want, they will have recorded, like pre-recorded their own matches and brought the video to the session rather than actually queue into a league together with like the clock running and all these considerations. Plus, like me sitting next to them, just being the shadow guiding them to make all the right plays. That's kind of uh, giving the man the fish rather than teaching him to fish. Uh, where if somebody shows up with a pre-recorded video, 
they just like make a different land drop than I would have on turn one. I'll be like, okay, pause. Why'd you do that? Like explain your thought process. And I can really dig into where their actual baseline is, see what they're doing out there in the wild without like me over their shoulder, without the pressure of the clock. We can pause, we can rewind, we can fast forward, uh, just having a complete control over the video. I've spent 25 minutes on a mulligan with one of my clients who just really wanted to understand like, wait, what? Why doesn't this worth the keep or why would you and like sometimes we spend an hour on the first three turns of a game and if there is meat on the bone we're gonna eat it and that's really hard to do when you're just jumping into a queue like let's do this thing for what it's worth i do both sorts but uh especially over covid and i'm not going to name any names here but there's people that do this for the human interaction element i feel like they just want to spend time with someone I, i don't know i'm not trying to be anyone's therapist here but some people want that one-on-one connection of like hopping into a queue with somebody and spending time with them. And you can do that with pre-recorded matches, but I feel like it's a little more uh, like surgical and precise, which is great if your only concern is like, I want the most information possible in the like littlest amount of time. Right. I I have experienced that as well. And I have expanded my like one hour of coaching to one hour of my time, generally speaking. Most people choose coaching with it, but I have that, like I mentioned in the Patreon pre-show that I recorded a live CEDH like spell table night. One of my patrons who gets a monthly coaching session used their their two hours to play CEDH with the Discord and just like lock me down for that amount of time. I had another group that it, it was a a play group. I think I mentioned this on the last episode where there there's like 20 of them and they all jumped on the Zoom call and we just jumped into a league together and we're just like goofing around on the Zoom while I was in the driver's seat and so there was coaching and I was talking about like the plays but there was also just, you know, 20 dudes having fun in a Zoom call. I'm available for parties. Book me. In the last episode, we talked a little bit about stigmas and CDH and getting over that hump between competitive and casual. I feel like there's also stigmas with coaching. Like people... F- like there's like talking to people like do I really need this and like am I going to be made fun of or anything and I just want to address that like there's nothing wrong with asking someone that's better at something for help like that's just like a basic human thing like you probably do it at work I certainly do if there's someone that's better at something I am not afraid to ask questions like I don't know I just want to get that out there everyone has something to learn in regards to magic and basically everything else in life so for example Like, Brian and I played a Death and Taxes league of some kind together at one point, and I consider Brian to be an absolutely brilliant Magic player, and there were a lot of times where Brian was just like, yeah, we're gonna do this, right? And I'm like, well, no, because of the repercussions five turns down the line of your sequencing, blah, 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 and I just vomit out something that I have from having 10,000 hours of playing Death and Taxes under my belt, and, like... If you can have the opportunity to get those same sorts of lessons from someone else, like, by all means, take it. You wouldn't think you can get a lot out of an hour or two of someone's time, but a lot of times you're learning the heuristics, you're learning the thought patterns, and you're getting to realize where your blind spots are, and that's super valuable. Yeah, I teamed for one of the Pro Tours with uh, Matt Sperling put a team together and uh, Paul Rietzel and Alexander Hain, like Hall of Famers, like really Pro Tour champions, like really phenomenal Magic players were on that team. Uh, Sperling also brought in like me and uh, Cyrus Cormangill was on the team. Like he, he brought up some like new to the pro scene people and 
I learned so much just in conversations with those guys. Like, uh, we, we got on a Zoom call and Rietzel just like laid out his new format draft philosophy. Uh, he was basically just like, don't listen to limited resources. Don't listen to anyone. Come to your own conclusions about everything. Try everything. Like, I think he ended up writing an article, Channel Fireball, where he laid out all of that if you actually want to read it. But like, I like looking into the brain of someone who has been crushing magic for 25 years at the highest level it is it, I leveled up crazy amounts in like the month or two that we were just sharing a, a discord and just that experience is worth so much and distilling it down to like one thing of like, I want to get better at pioneer blue white control. Like, all right, let's spend an hour talking about pioneer blue white control. Then that kind of focus is just worth so much. And there was a lot of what Bryant was talking about of like the stigma. Like there were a lot of, I follow the discourse on Twitter for good or ill. A lot of people responded like, LOL, imagine paying money to talk about magic with someone. And it's like, LOL, imagine trying to actually win the tournaments you keep playing in. Imagine not being dead money because you spent the time you invested in yourself. Do you want to win tournaments? Because you can, you know, get your ass kicked for 10 years and maybe grind up, get better slowly. Or maybe you'll just keep in your own bad habits and never get better. Or maybe you can let someone shine the light. Like it is vulnerability. Like allow yourself to be vulnerable. Allow a person to look at you and explain to you what your flaws are so you could start to fix them. It, it's, I mean, that just got like really therapy ish, but, and, and it's not that, but like that's also what a therapist does. Like, and that's a whole industry that's worth everything that you pay to get it done. And it just get better uh, by allowing yourself to admit that you are not as good as you think you are or admit that there is maybe you are exactly as good as you think you are and you know there's a higher ceiling than that open it up let it happen i have two points i'd like to make here so the first one's more of an antidote from this weekend the only person that i defeated in the moderate event was this kid that was looked like he was about 16 maybe 18 at the most and he's like oh how long have you been playing magic you have a lot of really cool cards in your deck i'm like oh you know uh i started playing in like 2001 2002 and i've never really quit he goes oh i've been playing for three weeks i'm like you chose amulet titan three <laughs> weeks into magic and you chose amulet titan when i was three weeks into playing magic i was like oh my god i can use dark ritual to pump up uh what's that shade the three mana shade. frozen shade yeah frozen shade. Or, oh older yeah uh and i was just like i was so far behind and this kid three weeks in is like yeah i understand ambulant lines like there's such a big jump now and how long it takes people to become decent at something like when i was a kid you would go to your game store and you just get thrashed like i didn't even start to get better until i was like two years into just like giving away money and now there's kids three weeks in playing star city events i don't know it blew my mind yeah, we've all talked about our origin stories before, and we're not going to get back into that. But I was full casual, just literally uh, 80 card decks with five of my friends at the lunch table playing casual, like free for alls, all five of us were in the game and whatever, like it was just magic without formats or tournaments for a very long time for me. But the like the existence of the internet and like the data hive mind and MTG goldfish and it seems like everybody's a content creator these days, which sucks coming from me, a content creator, <laughs> to acknowledge that. But like anyone with any amount of success has written a primer. They've sold a sideboard guide that did like a one shot for TCG player or whatever. Like it's out there. Every single thing that if you want to learn, it is out there. And then coaching is like a level up of aggressively consuming content 
it's like that that's what you were talking about of like why do i write a flame before a dark ritual that you can get that by watching any the epic storm video but then like the why do i personally why should i make this play with like all of my play patterns and like my sensibilities like what do i need as a player comes out in coaching and the second point that i would like to make is you mentioned this paul Ritzel article uh, about playing limited and things like that. And I know for a fact that Brian had a similar level up origin story to me where you, we would read MTG The Source and Star City Games every single day, craving that new content. We're now in an era where video content is just like by far the most popular thing. And I think it's actually kind of tough to find articles that have substance in them. Because a lot of the articles that are published nowadays tend to be decklist dumps with like a, a line here or there. And I'm not trying to make fun of anyone, but there just isn't the meat and potatoes that were there when we were a little bit younger, just because a lot of that stuff is video content now. And at least for me, I find that tends to be a little bit tougher to digest and you have to spend more time trying to find the good info because you don't know if you're going to queue into a video and it's going to be a complete dud or if there's going to be really good information in there. Yeah, it takes six to eight hours to write a good article it takes a lot less time to record a video with the same content all right so let's let's talk about pricing so like we we all do do tutoring um i guess i'll start i usually try to book a two-hour session for 75 dollars. that's my normal rate um to be honest i think i am undercharging and I'm fine with that rate for the summer, but I think as soon as the school year starts up and my time becomes more limited again and I'm not a full-time content creator, that probably just has to go up just due to how valuable my time is and how many other things uh, people are asking me to do with things like guest content and whatnot. And, you know, having a girlfriend and social life. Yeah, I've already said I charge 50 an hour. And the way I came to that number was I figured out what would it take, like, what would my hourly rate have to be if I was going to do magic stuff full time? Like, how, if, I, if I'm just booked out making a reasonable, reliable amount of money on this, what would the rate have to be? And I came to 50 an hour, uh, which is, like, pretty good because considering at my day job at the time, I was making, like, 28 an hour. And that was, like, with a master's degree. And I was like, you know, I'm just swinging for the fences. If, if I'm going to play a game as a living, I'm going to get paid for it. And I just said 50 and people took me up on it. And it has that number just feels good. I feel like I'm getting paid for my time and it also feels accessible to the people who want it. I've seen a lot of numbers kicked around in like the Twitter discourse where it's like, I'd probably pay 10 to $15 an hour for that. It's like, you're, you're not just paying for the time you're paying for the years of experience that make that time valuable it's an expert service at like a contractor rate so like uh the 50 to like 75 dollars an hour it seems completely reasonable i know uh like poker and league of legends coaches charge like 200 400 sometimes 500 or more depending on like how much clout you have in the community and how good you actually are those people stay busy uh, I, I think the magic players in general have less money than poker players or there is the prize pool is less incentivized to like invest in yourself in that way so i i don't know if anyone would get away with 500 dollars an hour for coaching magic but as like a birthday present or something spending an hour with like apollo or a or a luis it, that, that would be worth a lot of money to me for sure 
Bryant, do you want to talk about your rate? If you don't, I'll just have Phil edit out what I'm saying here. I'll talk about it. Um, I don't really know how I feel about my rates, if I'm being honest. So currently, you can sign up through theepicstorm.com, and I charge $75 for one league or two hours worth of my time. I'm not super stingent on that. Like some people are like, oh, we've gone over. And I'm like, okay, if we play match five, it's probably going to take 20 minutes. Like what's two hours and 20 minutes? Like it's fine. Like I just appreciate that you signed up. But there's sometimes there's people that are, we're like a match and a half in and we're at two hours because they want to use every second of every game clock asking questions. And just because like in my, and this is my own fault in my tutoring, I say we can play a league. So I need to revise that myself. Uh, more than anything else, because at some point I'm being taken advantage of. And with the success of my YouTube channel, sometimes I feel like when people sign up for stuff, I'm like, I'm realistically losing money on this. Like, yes, they're paying me for my time. This will make more than any YouTube video I will upload. But at the same time, I'm not gaining anything for the channel by spending my time doing this. Like I could upload the the VOD of my tutoring session, but I don't want to do that. So I, I do like the tutoring session stuff, but I'm not happy with my current setup and I need to revise it. I wasn't going to say anything, but I guess I just like aired my uh, my grievances with my own system. No, you're totally right. I did the same thing. Like when I first opened up my Patreon, I, I like blew it out at the top end, like $100 a month. You'll get to play a league with me and you get a donation deck and you get like all this other stuff. Right now, my donation deck price is $75. And getting a league with me, I'm known for like band control and standstill. Like that's probably three, four hours of my time. Like at my current rate, so like four hours, that's two hundred plus the donation deck, that's two seventy five. Like piecemeal, that would be like a three hundred dollar worth of perks for one hundred, and Patreon's taking a cut of it. Like I had to very quickly like, oh no, I can't give them a league. Like, delete that, delete that, <laughs> make that something different. And I'm actually going to be phasing out that level of patron in the next three months because it just doesn't make any sense anymore it's basically a free roll i hope that multiple 300 or 100 patrons roll in after this episode who want to farm the free value for the two months it's on the table but yeah it just doesn't make any sense anymore so our kind of final thing before we wrap up this section like is it worth it and just to formally say this we are not advertising for our own tutoring here like, we very much do not have the time for a massive influx of people who want tutoring. This isn't a money-making thing here. This is just, like, engaging with the current discourse. So, just one sentence, you know, what's your thoughts? Is it is it worth it for people to pay the price? Only they can decide that, but uh, generally, I would say yes. And if you are at a spot where you're considering, like, would coaching be good for me? If you're at the... If your brain is in a place where you're considering paying money for coaching as a maybe, then you're probably going to benefit from it. My take on it is that most people who have had a tutoring session with me have sent me a follow-up email or message being like, hey, do you need a testimonial or anything? Because I learned a lot. So, like, everyone who has done coaching with me has, like, walked away very happy with the experience. Although I will say... Different people got very different things out of those tutoring sessions, depending on how far in their journey they were with a given like get deck or subject. Yeah, I, I will add to that that very few people have only purchased one tutoring session from me. Like they come out, they're like, oh, I'm going to try this. It's like a little special, like it's my birthday or whatever. And then they're like, OK, I'm going to see you in two months. 
and and we I have a lot of people who I see monthly, and it, we just get into the rhythm, and I see them improve over time. And not many people are like, okay, thanks, whatever, bye. So I think the one thing that I experience with coaching that I think is probably a negative is sometimes I'll go through a couple sessions, and this might be uh, you know my own thing, but sometimes these people are like, oh, I was sort of expecting something to click in my head. Like they expected like an aha moment that never happened. And I don't think that those happen. Maybe I'm just a bad tutor, but they, so I've had that feedback before where someone's like, oh, I was like waiting for like an aha moment or like a sudden realization. At least in my experience, you're not going to get that. Maybe they do with Brian because he's a genius and Phil's really good at what Phil does. But at least for me, there's no like huge, like, oh, that makes so much sense. Like I'm a completely different player sort of thing. So at least for me, I wouldn't go in thinking that like you're going to just have something click in your head and all of a sudden you're at that next level. Yeah, it's more like it's not like I like I'm picturing brain synapses right now, not like medically, but just like, you know, like a cartoon version of like two giant synapses just like approaching each other. And then they just like start sparking after a coaching session. I'm picturing it as like hundreds of little ones that eventually they will start overlapping and over time and reps uh, you'll you'll realize that you are a different player than you were before you had your two or three coaching sessions but it's not going to be like I'm a master of the epic storm right now that's just not how learning works uh and last thing I'll say about the coaching thing is find a coach that is right for you a lot of people who come to me for coaching are coming to me for one of two reasons Either they want my specific expertise with usually red prison or death and taxes, or they're coming to me because they appreciate how clearly and like carefully I am able to like word things and the way that I am asking questions. And like, it's very clear that I have this education background. So like, I know how to teach people. And that's why they come to me. Whereas if you were looking to get better with, you know, a specific combo deck like i can ask all the right questions but i not i might not know all the answers right whereas like bryant with all the work that he has done with data and just tons of combo decks over the years is the person i would absolutely turn to for coaching for something of that nature so like do your research you know not not all coaches are are created equal in all regards amen to that I don't know about you guys but i've been like silently sitting here super excited to talk about monastery swisphere and pauper how about we uh, oh, yeah. head on over to section number two? Yeah, let's shake it up. She never misses a beat. She's landing on her feet. Taylor Swift Spear has come to the popper. And uh, yeah, th- this is a legacy power level threat. Monastery Swift Spear is a like format defining object in every format it's ever been legal in, except I guess vintage, standard, pioneer, uh, legacy, modern. It- it's just everywhere. And now it's a-, a freaking common. Phil, what's going on with this? So this thing put up eight finishes in the top 32 of one of the weekend challenges, and it is slotting into a lot of existing decks. It is going into Burn, it is going into the Hot Dogs deck, which is the, like, Kiln Fiend, cast a bunch of spells in one turn, kill your opponent deck. Um, There are Boros decks uh, with sort of a Prowess sub-theme with Seeker of the Way. The Rakdos Madness Burn deck is picking it up. So this is like such a powerful, and I I like what you said, format defining, format changing card that it is not like taking people weeks to figure out like, what do we do with this new toy? No, it was, it was obvious, like put it in decks, 
get people dead. I thought it was a joke when it was spoiled. Like, I thought it was one of those things that people post to Twitter because it's photoshopped. They go, let's see how many people people I can get with this. Like, it blows my mind that they downshifted Monastery Swiss Spear. When you look at the burn deck, did you know that it has Fire Blast and Pauper? Like, this card that's the <laughs> core of Legacy Burn, it has Fire Blast, it has Lightning Bolt, it has Lava Spike. All these broken burn spells that the Legacy version plays, Skewer the Critics, they're all in there. Like, it has some of the best, like, in fact, Pauper might be the best format for Burn. The only thing it was lacking was effective one-drops, because they only had Gitu Lava Runner, and then recently Voldaren Epicure. So they just gave Burn the only thing that it was missing. Like, it blows my mind. Like, this deck is going to be tier one for years to come. Basically already was, and I'm not trying to doom and gloom. I'm actually excited that a deck like this is taking some real estate back from just, like, ephemerate, Tron, familiar, like, kind of top-end engine nonsense. I think it is healthy that there's a deck in Popper that just just blasts. Yeah, this was not subtle. This was not like, uh, like oh, Burning Tree Emissary. How do we like use all the mana involved in this card? Or like, how many, what's the land count? Like, there, there was no no mystery. Or like, even Ephemerate, the aforementioned, like, obviously this card's powerful. What are we blinking? Uh, how do we make this work? This is just like, oh yeah, there's like four established metagame decks already that this just rams straight into and upgrades all of them. A deck that I think could be looked at that it doesn't just slot into, and Brian, you're the expert here. The format also recently gained Fire Ice. That is a card that is popper legal probably for about a year now. So now there's a real reason to play Blue Red Tempo in the format that isn't fairies based. You can run a Monastery Swiss Spear Tempo deck that isn't looking to Nijitsu a ninja in a play. And I think that's an interesting design space that could be very good because if you look back probably, what, seven, eight years ago, that's what Blue Red Delver looked like in Legacy. And I think you could probably get that now in Popper. Yeah, you're like a sprite dragon away from a pretty reasonable looking legacy deck from eight years ago. And uh, yeah, it's there. Uh, the dual lands are not there. Uh, I guess they all come into play tapped or have some major drawback, but like uh, you're not going to have two volcanic islands to fire blast with. So like that's a thing that the old blue red Swiss spear tempo deck could do that popper is not capable of. But a lot of that shell does exist, and it is really interesting design space. Plus, everyone will play around Spellstutter Sprite, even though you're just holding up three lightning bolts. And I, th I think more importantly than anything else, the focus of the format has shifted kind of in the last few weeks of Popper prior to this downshift happening. Like, there, there's a just absolute huge focus on, like, artifact land decks with, you know, 12 draw two effects and on Ephemerate. And now kind of like the focus of the format has spread out a little bit more where there's mo now more viable things and you need to be playing interaction for these Swift Spear decks. Um, the uh, who did this? Uh, he who is in the water won one of the popper challenges with a deck with three lone missionaries and then core skyfishers to bounce them and replay them right so like there's very much this desire to have some incidental life gain to make it so that you can recover from the early damage that a swift spear is doing in the times where you can't necessarily just remove it on turn one phil you brought up a point that i absolutely love and that's that the format's been defined by two for ones the last 
six months, probably even longer than that. We've talked a lot about Deadly Dispute on the podcast. There's Reckoner's Bargain now, which is like a poor man's uh, Deadly Dispute. The original Thoughtcast Brian talked about, I believe, in the last episode. And it's tough because you can't just remove one. Like the format's so deep at this point that we're never getting out of this. But by adding Swift Spear to the format, you've changed what the game is about. You're no longer arguing about incremental card advantage and things like that. It's just your life total is all you have. Good luck staying alive. And I think saying the game isn't about the two for ones anymore was actually something really smart for Wizards to do, even if it was on accident, just because it's I think it's the shakeup popper needed. Yeah, I compared. I didn't have burn in mind, but I did talk about green stompy. This like 10 or 12 land basic forest land grant one drops with hex proof and a bunch of pump spells howl of the night pack like that was a tier one deck for a while. And it's just laughably bad now. And I, I think I posed the question of like, what would we have to ban or what would we have to print or shift to make that deck good again? Alex Allman and I had a chat about that, like after he listened to the episode and it's like, uh, kind of like, does it deserve meta share? Like, is that how we want to curate the format, etc.? And let's just hard pivot here in this conversation from one monocolor aggro deck to another, Monastery Swissbeer. That answered my question about Green Stompy, but in the format of Burn. Yeah, this is just the power level of card that can, like, you could die with two Thoughtcasts in your hand. Good luck over there. And I'm down with anything that punishes Thoughtcast and incentivizes, like, a kind of removal spell i need to react to something kind of fair magic world that's where i like to live i think the removal spells are actually super interesting in the format now um popper had a lot of red removal a lot of lightning bolts floating around but if people are playing monastery swift spears backed by things like mutagenic growth and apostles blessing and stuff like that like those become a lot less attractive um i think alex olman was the one who was posting about this um he suggested playing enchantments um cards like dead weight or uh, immolation which is kind of a red thing that gives a negative two toughness to have better answers to swift spear quick mtg finance right here uh legends immolations are like a dollar and change right now uh, readily available if this becomes popper tech we might see a run on that it's just like a sweet very cool looking old magic card that if it's fringe playable now or even like non-fringe playable in a real format it's just a cool thing to own it's interesting to look at a deck like blue white familiars which would now be esper familiars because over the course of the last four months they realized with the new lands from i believe streets and new capanna that they can just go get a swamp at such a low value and their deck naturally gains incremental life that they're like oh it's free for us to play snuff out I'm interested to see how that changes with Burn being a big player in the format. Can you afford to have four snuff outs in your deck for air quotes free? Did that just change? Yeah, and also like the tension on snuff out specifically of like it ignores mutagenic growth and all the things that get Swiss Spear out of the range of red removal, but also like if you don't draw it on turn one, can you ever even cast it? Like I, I like that tension in deck building. Big fan. So I think like tempo is going to be very interesting in popper um and we'll get into this more in a second but there are some incentives to play some tapped lands in popper that are kind of new um we'll do a section on basilisk gate in just a second but there are some gate cards that like want you to play a bunch of gates and how good are you at beating a monastery swift spear if you have you know north of 12 gates in your deck list that are always entering tapped 
you know, all, maybe not all, but most pauper decks at least do play some tapped lands because, like, the bounce lands give so much value. The artifact uh, lands give a lot of value, the indestructible ones. But, you know, what what happens when you're playing 16 gates in your deck list? Like, are you good at answering the Swift Spear? The answer is probably no. Yeah, and gates are not swamps, so snuff out is not a solution to your tap land problem. Even if you look at the tap lands in the format, there's the ones, the campus lands that scry one. And then I can't remember the set, I'm sorry, but there's new ones that draw a card for four mana. You sacrifice the land itself and you just pay for a draw card. So you get. Are those a, all gates? I don't believe they're gates. I was saying that people don't play gates because they play the campus lands or those. Oh, yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. So. I don't know if I believe in Basilisk Gate just because I see the format speeding up quite a bit. Even before Swiss Beer was added, recently the Boros Red Bully decks, I feel like they've all become faster, like at least to me, because they all play uh, like the Sacred Cat and the uh, Luminarch Veteran. And all of a sudden they're attacking for me for 15 on turn three or four with Rally the Peasants. So I don't know if I love the idea of like a Basilisk Gate deck that on turn 12 is like, wait until I attack you with my 10-2. Funny you should mention that. Let, oh. Let's pause because we have not read the text of this card. Auditory medium, gentlemen. Uh, Basilisk Gate is a land dash gate, comes into play untapped, tap for a colorless, or two tap, target creature gets plus X plus X until end of turn, where X is the number of gates you control, activate as a sorcery. That's what we're talking about here. Just a giant... Howl from Beyond, hang out in your mana base. You realize that someone's going to pay Phil to play this, right? Like, this is all just marketing oh, for Phil. Abso-fucking-lutely. I might pay someone to play this. Like, I, I'm I'm excited about this. I have my foils of all the gates from the new set. Like, I didn't pre-order Allosaurus Shepherds or whatever. I got the gates. <laughs> that, that was my priority. So, Zoon, Z-O-O-H-N, from the Popper Challenge this weekend, got first place with a squadron hawk sacred cat like basilisk gate deck that like kind of feels almost like caw blady in some ways where you like want to suit up the squadron hawk with these gate activations as your way to close out the games and it's doing like this sort of stuff instead of rally the peasants uh, it's a blue white deck instead of a blue red deck yeah, you get to actually, like, Squadron Hawk's been legal in Popper since its inception, and there's been, like, some stuff with Squadron Hawk. It's been a role player in decks, but, like, just drawing the game out to a point where the Squadron Hawk is a 7-7 just from hitting your land drops, that that's kind of a game changer for sure. And Sacred Cat is just Uro. Uro, Titan of Nature's Wrath. It, it, that's It's functionally the same thing. Uh that that's a bit of an overstatement, but I like. I'm gonna to... get that printed on a T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, Sacred Cat is Uro. Yeah, uh, like if you get Sacred Cat up to even like three, three, four, four, a game could be unwinnable for certain decks. We've been talking about Monastery Swiss Beer. Like I have a lifelink creature that comes back as also a lifelink creature, and you're gonna burn it up front. You're gonna burn it twice. Uh, if you don't, I'm out of reach. Like it's it's just a very powerful thing. And I, I do like to draw comparisons, like contextual comparisons, like uh, Stormbound Geist. My nickname for that is True Name Nemesis because of the effect it has on a popper game. And I think that Basilisk Gate with like with Sacred Cat is going to feel like Uro in a lot of games where it's just like, how do I ever beat this engine? 
Yeah, and assuming you get this stuff going, the deck also plays Gifts Gifts of Orzova, uh, which is a gate crash card. Uh, white two white black hybrid, and then one colorless enchant creature gets plus one plus one has flying and lifelink. So you can slap that on something, give it evasion, and then grow it with these gates, and it it is disgusting. Yeah. Uh- a lot of popper decks do care about your life total. They're good at dealing like exactly 20 damage, maybe 23, 24, but then that's it. Some popper decks don't, but when you when you're in one of those matchups, like if you queue into like Bogles or something and you're just cracking with a, a giant lifelink creature at some uh, at some tipping point, you just can't lose anymore. Same with burn goblins any sort of attacking deck bryant have you run the math on like how much damage cycle storm can actually do like is it is there a point where you're infinite or is it like no we can do like 52 and then we're out of gas you can get up into the 500s but at some point you're forced to deck yourself because you can create a loop with double uh, repository scops songs of the damned and reaping the graves but eventually you have to be able to cycle just to gain life so that way you can keep on using your blood celebrant. So you can do like 500, like whether the storm doesn't actually matter. Fair enough. And, and is that all at once, like in one iteration? Or is it like, a, I've done like 20, reset my deck, and next turn I'm going to go again? No, you'll end up with like 400 black mana floating, but all you right, just run enough. out of deck. That's a that's an axis that even the combo decks care about life total a little bit. So for those of you that played standard, uh, I don't know, like 10 years ago or whatever, when Kessig Wolf Run was around... That was a low-cost thing that you could put into your deck list that just became this, like, ultimate finisher as games went on, right? You just, like, pump your mana into that in the end game. It, like, tramples through. It gives you the ability to just kind of dominate combat. This might do the same sort of thing in Pauper, you know? Granted, we're at the common version of that instead of the rare version of that, so, like, there's, there's a power level difference. But this is giving me those sorts of vibes, where if you have an evasive creature of some kind... It's especially blight, uh, sorry, it's especially spicy with something like a blighted agent. Um, you can, you can do some gross things. I was checking out Scryfall for cards that care about gates, because I was like, ooh, maybe Phil's gate I deck isn't terrible if the pyroclasm is legal. Gates ablaze, unfortunately, it is an uncommon. Oh god, did you draft that set? That could not be a common. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. Yeah, that card was unbeatable in the draft format. There are a few pretty good cards in here, like Gate Creeper Vine. Like, that card seems amazing with some of these new gates that, well, one is uh, Wolf Run, or there's Heap Gate, which makes treasure tokens. Like, there's a few, like, pretty cute ones in here. Is Vine a Sylvan Library or a Rampant Growth? Or a Sylvan Scrying or a Rampant Growth? Does it come into play? Hand. 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 Okay, I thought so. Yeah, still pretty solid. The, the gate cards are really cool. Like, they do come at a real cost, though. Like, as we were talking about, the list that top iterate, or I should say, the list that won, rather, plays four Basilisk Gate, four Citadel Gate, four Seagate, one Heap Gate. That is 13 of its 22 lands that come into play tapped. And, like, this this is a deck that does, like, play one-drops, um, like Sacred Cat, Preordain... Uh, I guess you can technically count Brainstorm as a one-drop. Like, you don't really want to play it on turn one all the time. No, but that's it is. a three-drop with Squadron Hawk. So, like, there there are deck-building costs. You are going to take tempo hits from doing it. But, like, this is something that is strong, but needs to be explored. Like, th- this is a, you know, uh, effective weekend one first-place finish with this. 
and I expect we'll see a lot of people iterating on this and doing similar things with it. But I don't think this is quite as easy to slot into decks as just like, haha, Monastery, Swift Spear, Lightning Bolts, go burr. I'd like to do two things here. One, make a humble brag, and two, offer an opposing viewpoint. So Popper Geddon happened in Italy last weekend, and the second place finisher is a supporter of the Epic Storm YouTube channel. They love the Cycle Storm content. It's the only content that I create that they even care about. And they were really fascinated by this all basic Cycle Storm list that I posted. It technically isn't all basics. There are four Ash Barons in there. But the idea is that running something like Barrymore comes at a cost because it comes into play tapped, and then you're not cycling on the first turn. When you're not cycling on the first turn, you're not getting as deep into your deck to find the Reaping the Graves and Songs of the Damned before that critical turn. And recently in Popper, I felt like the critical turn is actually accelerated. Especially with Swift Spear entering the format, the all basics mana base started to make more sense, and then they did very, very well. So I'm actually, in general, really low on tap lands and popper right now to begin with. So I'm not super thrilled about the gates. That said, I am always open to being wrong, and I definitely love trying out new things. So it doesn't really bother me if I lose as long as I'm learning. But I don't know if I've experienced a faster popper format that isn't the fling atog uh, deck. I am going to be recording with Tortured Existence maybe tomorrow or the day after. And I like I am very much wondering, like, how many of my rounds am I just going to get, like, absolutely rolled by Swift Spear before I get my engine going? Like, I'm, I'm definitely worried about playing a slower deck in Pauper at this exact moment. Yeah, uh, the get up and running wedge of Pauper. I mean, Azorius Familiars, that deck is built on Azorius Chancery and going off. So that's like a deck with tap lands that also are ETB tapped and also bounce lands and but like the payoff is there when you get set up tron i mean tron is sort of not super present with expedition map band but like the setup of like uh tron land no they unbanned I, map. oh they, they they brought it back i'm a little soft on popper right now but uh, maybe that's a a statement to how fast the format is that i tron's not on my radar but like getting tron set up even in even in modern obviously the deck's built to do it but like two lands that tap for colorless is not an exciting start to a game like you basically get three turns on the player two turns on the draw to do whatever you want against a deck like tron so there's like a history of getting your mana up under you and then doing something preposterous at the top end and it's just i guess is this basilisk gate worth every other land in your deck being terrible for like we know the power of tron we know the power of uh untapping azorius chancery with cost reducing effects in play and yeah, we'll just see where this lands, I guess. Yeah, there is a real chance that, like, what happened here was Brewer's advantage, right? Like, someone comes out with these gate decks, like, you're not used to playing against them, like, you don't know what it's going to do to the combat math if you turns down the line, you know, you maybe don't have any sideboard cards that will blow up a land or something like that. Or early success sometimes happens with something, and then it falls off once it's a known quantity. There's definitely Brewer's Advantage. Like, if I saw Boros Guildgate come into play in the Popper Challenge last weekend, I would not have put my opponent on a Squadron Hawk control deck. I, I would have been, like, trying to find my Electric Rays or whatever and play this one-for-one -one game or try to get ahead on board so I can take the Monarch when it happens, and just none of those things ended up happening in this case. So definitely Brewer's Advantage, but even, like, a, brewer, a, a bad deck with Brewer's Advantage isn't going to win a tournament. There has to be something there. 
I have a question for the two of you to tie this to legacy for a moment. So we are all legacy experts, for lack of a better term. We have hundreds of reps with our preferred decks. We know the format in and out. I mean, just a couple episodes ago, we were talking about a hypothetical where your opponent led on underground scene to Savannah. What are they playing? That sort of thing. We were like, okay, we can narrow this down to two to three decks that they're likely on. Like, even though they were fringe decks, we sort of pieced it together. Someone was asking me over the weekend how I can go into every single match with my opponents knowing what I'm playing and that I don't know what they're on. And doesn't that put me at such a disadvantage? And the answer is hard to disagree with. Like, yes, I'm at a disadvantage. But as the specialist, you know every single matchup way better than your opponent. Like, at least on average. A lot of the times, I'll sit down and my opponent will lead on Terminal Volcanic Island, and I'm like, okay, at least in the last three months, I've played this matchup at least a hundred times. If someone leads on, this is just, once again, a, a weird example, but for some reason, they lead on, like, Tower of the Magistrate on turn one, I'm like, what are they playing? And all of a sudden, like, I have to figure out what they're doing and what they could possibly have in their deck and things like that. And I feel like sometimes that throws me for enough of a loop while I'm trying to piece together what they're doing where something can slip in or something I wasn't expecting and that will delay me a turn. And then that will ultimately be the thing that gets them at least the first game win. That doesn't always happen to me. And this is just me describing Brewer's advantage. But I think that sometimes it's enough to tip the scales, at least for the first game. And then from there, they only have to get one. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. That's like the whole thing where I had a match recently on camera where I was playing against show and tell. And I like navigated the show and tell half of the deck, but I noticed they had an underground C. While I was sideboarding, I looked at my surgical extractions and I was like, do I think this is a reanimator hybrid? That it was not a thing I had seen recently or like at all in a very long time. But it was like, why would you have black mana in show and tell? And a reanimation package lines up in a way that makes sense. And I was like, just like, ah, no, I'm not going to bring these in. And then game two, entomb reanimate, GG. And then I was like, okay, back to the sideboard. We're going to fix this one. So like they definitely got that game. I I had an inkling, but I wasn't ready to move on it because like having bad cards in against a a deck like the surgical extraction isn't great against show and tell until you survive the first show and tell. Then it becomes like reasonable. But the brewer's advantage is there. There's also the flip side of the brewer's disadvantage, because if the brewer doesn't know more than you do then they're just playing an untested deck and you have the same experience at that point. Uh, like Steve Rubin and I had a conversation on the way back from GP Louisville. It was like the year that he later won his pro tour, like nine months later or something. He just had brewed some like mono white aggro deck in a standard format that didn't have a mono white aggro deck. And on the way home, he was like, yeah, I just was just like, wasn't quite sure how to sideboard and stuff. And I was like, well, if you're going to brew, if you're going to come in out of left field, you need to know that your opponent has a better deck than you and they might not know what you're doing or how to plan for it. But if you don't either, then you're going to lose. Like maybe your deck was brilliantly positioned, but you need to come in at high confidence and exploit their low confidence. Either this winner of the tournament uh, with Basilisk Gate knows Popper like the back of their hand and really just pinned it or this is powerful enough to overcome brewer's disadvantage on top of the brewer's advantage. Yeah, talking about that knowledge, like I play a lot of really bad decks for my channel. Same. And yeah, and both of us are still going infinite. Like occasionally we need to like crack some chests, maybe sell a couple cards or something like that. But like we are going infinite 
playing a lot of awful decks. And the reason we are able to do that is because of an absolutely absurd amount of format knowledge and experience. And if you have that sort of format knowledge for a format like Popper, like you can maybe like see the lines in in the matrix, like you can see the code and you can like put together these brews that can do these things. Um, but there's going to be a lot of times where like, even if you have that knowledge, like sometimes it's your knowledge that's carrying you, even if the brew isn't necessarily good. Hard to argue with that based on the video evidence that exists from the last three years on my channel. Yes, I'd, I'd, I'd like to thank my uh, 5.0 with three copies of Actual Factual Pox to uh, illustrate this point. We're about to wrap up here, but I just want to bemoan real quick. I lost in a heartbreaking game three of match five to miss a trophy with one that would have topped the Reddit scales of maximum spice. I'm not going to give the spoiler, but oh, I felt bad. And I lost to like grandfather 60 card death and taxes too. It's just die roll magic. If I won the die roll, I would have easily won game one and then just like narrowly got squeezed out at the very end of game three. Just absolute heartbreaker. Uh, I, I, I feel like I'm due for a absolute bullshit 5-0 and I could smell it hurts but still a four one if you told me i would have four one with the list that i presented in in round one i would have uh shook satan's hand and got that one done with <laughs> <laughs> all right do we have any closing thoughts on popper here are we excited are we are we scared where do we stand pack your hydroblasts they're going to be good yeah uh i'm excited i'm excited about anything that shakes up a format that it is like has been in sort of a weird spot where nothing's quite broken. They got like the Mr. Burns has every disease, so none of them are actually killing him situation with like the fairy engine being cracked, the 12 thought cast being cracked, and then Monarch is just lurking. And it's just an extremely high power format. And I'm excited by the possibility that a nuts and bolts creature with power and toughness could flip the script a little bit. And I'm going to hate losing to Monastery Swiss Beer. I'm going to be rolling my eyes and grumpy about it every single time but like i'm glad it's there so bryant you mentioned uh hydroblasts the challenge winning deck list that we were talking about did have four elemental blasts and one hydroblast in the sideboard there's that format knowledge right there it is in practice brilliant congratulations on your win uh basilisk gate person all right, why don't we go ahead and wrap it up on that note. I hope you all enjoyed. If you're really enjoying and want to hear more of our content, remember we ramble on for a half an hour on our Patreon pre-show every week. Otherwise, patrons, please remember to submit your questions for our mailbag article in two weeks. Have a great rest of the day, folks.